Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Summer is all about grilling, and no one understands grilling better than Omaha Steaks. Their grand summer grill-out package lets you stay home and eat like you're at the best steakhouse in town, all for much less. They've got bacon-wrapped filet mignon, pork chops, chicken, kielbasa, and more, all delivered to your door with ease. And right now, Omaha Steaks is offering an exclusive deal on this amazing package. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code LIBERAL into the search bar, and for this week only, Omaha Steaks will add four burgers and four gourmet jumbo franks free with your order. Omaha Steaks delivers quality and safety with every order guaranteed. Your order will arrive flash-frozen, vacuum-sealed, and safely delivered to your door in a cooler with dry ice. Go to omahasteaks.com, type liberal in the search bar, and order the Grand Summer Grill Out Package. For this week only, you'll receive four Jumbo Franks and four Omaha Steaks burgers free to complete your steakhouse experience. omahasteaks.com, enter code liberal in the search bar. Trump should name who the staffer was who advised him to bring back the briefings and then fire that staffer during a briefing. Let's begin. back to the Sanity Cast, the helpful little Stephanie Miller podcast about how to not lose your mind when Barack Obama gives a eulogy about a man's political lifetime of work and racists say he was politicizing the eulogy. Uh, it's great to be with you. This is a really special one. One of my favorite, not just one of my favorite uh, comedians, uh, one of my favorite men uh, on the show. Because, you know, men, they're great, but come on, uh, testosterone rots the brain. And Y-chromosome generally is proof of damaged goods. But uh, Gregory Joseph joins us on the show today, and he's someone that I've worked with a lot. Uh, he's joined me on, on stage for many shows. We've done a lot of radio together. And um, his dad died a year ago, and he moved down to New Orleans. And uh, I think he's never coming back. But he is, um, uh, he's been a Democratic strategist. Uh, he's worked with senators. He's worked with uh, some amazing people from Bill Bradley to Carol Mosley Braun. He's communications director for National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Um, he is uh, a, a terrific comedian whose work, he deals a lot with racism and race. And, uh, and as an African-American male who is involved in politics and does stand up. He has perspectives that I find fascinating, but um, I think you're going to like him. He's a really serious guy and a really lovely guy. And it's going to take up the bulk of this one because it's a really great talk. Um, In the meantime, congratulations, 
you made it through the week, right? I mean, Herman Cain didn't make it. Um, and I don't really know what to say about Herman Cain. There, there's been a lot of mean liberals saying things about his death. I don't think we can do that. Uh, I think it's possible to tell the truth about Herman Cain without taking pleasure in suffering, without laughing at the, the, the sorrow of his family. But look, Herman Cain, yes, he, he, he was at spread stock and uh, at Trump's Tulsa rally, although the family said he didn't catch it there. He had been traveling all over the country and he could have caught it anywhere. And his family didn't realize that they were actually celebrating his callousness and indifference to human life. He was traveling all over the country during a lockdown. And you know he wasn't wearing a mask anywhere he went. So Herman Cain did not deserve to die like this. And um, it is not making fun of his death or his suffering to talk about his actual legacy, because Herman Cain is one of the reasons why so many people in this country are so poor. You know, look, we talked a lot about when he was on the stage at all those Democratic, all those Republican debates talking about 999 plan, right? Um, it was easy to say, well, look, here's their token black friends, and this is how they get away from any accusations of racism because they have this guy on stage. And he used to run Godfather's Pizza, so that's why he's there. That wasn't why he was there. Herman Cain was there because he used to run the National Restaurant Association. That is a lobbying organization. It is uh, arguably the NRA that has hurt even more people than the actual NRA. Now, that's a lobbying group that exists to keep wages low for restaurant workers. For many years, uh, McDonald's and the like paid Herman Cain, so Herman Cain would bribe congressmen to keep the minimum wage low. That was the work. That's what he did. That's what he's famous for. That's why Republicans respected him. That's Herman Cain's gig. Now, for years, you know, in this country, until 1966, we didn't have a base minimum wage for tipped workers or a base wage for tipped workers, right? Uh, and that only, amount, only amounted to like 50% of the minimum wage that was already guaranteed. Because, you know, we have a minimum for tips in this country. And some people know how rigged that system is. Because Congress kept on raising the sub-minimum tipped wage until 1996. That's when Herman Cain made his impact on history. Because Herman Cain offered Congress a bargain. Uh, the restaurant industry would accept a tiny increase in the minimum wage if... Congress agreed to freeze the tipped wage at $2.13 per hour. Think about that in 1996, and then think about the fact that Congress agreed to the deal, and to this day, 24 years later, the tipped minimum wage remains just $2.13. That is the true legacy of Herman Cain. And I will not laugh at Herman Cain's suffering because I do not laugh at the suffering Herman Cain imposed upon other people. That's what he did. Spent most of his adult life fighting against an increase in the minimum wage. And of course, in his final months, he downplayed the dangers of COVID-19. Now, I don't want to be negative. Uh, so uh, again, I just, I, I feel the need to address it because no one's telling the truth and people are being either way too mean or way too nice. And I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, uh, but I kind of think we can mentally walk and chew gum at the same time on this. If you're, of course, just waking up from a coma by now, you know that 154,000 Americans confirmed have lost their life worldwide. It's over 672,000. Nearly 30 million Americans went hungry last week. Food insecurity for American households reached its highest reported level. Since the census started tracking this in May, almost 30 million Americans reported they didn't have enough to eat in the last week, 
And almost five and a half million indicated they often did not have enough to eat. This is where we're at. This is what it's like now. And we're recording this on the day that unemployment insurance goes away and is cut by 50 to 75% for literally millions, millions of Americans. Um, so in the midst of this, Texas is one of the states that hasn't expanded access to mail voting. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is trying to make masks mandatory in the House chamber because I don't know if you've heard, but COVID-19 caught Louis Gohmert because COVID-19 wasn't wearing a mask. And yesterday was the day that Trump floated delaying the election, despite the fact he has no authority to do so. And for me, the big story was, this is how we know Trump is done. Did you hear the freakouts of the right wing over Donald Trump wanting to delay an election? Can I quote a few people? In the Republican Party, which I don't get to do enough, uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, never in the history of federal elections have we not held an election, and we should go forward with it. Chuck Grassley, doesn't matter what an individual in this country says, we are still a country based on the rule of law. We must follow the law until the Constitution is changed. That's Chuck Grassley saying it doesn't matter what an individual says. That's Chuck Grassley in Iowa writing off Trump because he knows Joe Biden might win Iowa. Marco Rubio said, he can suggest whatever he wants. The law is what it is. We're going to have an election that's legitimate. It's going to be credible. It's going to be the same as we've always done it. Uh, Mitt Romney said, so I'm a fan of voting by mail. Secondly, of course, we're going to have an election on time. It's unthinkable. That would not be the case. Ted Cruz said, election fraud is a serious problem. We need to stop it and fight it. But no, the election should not be delayed. Welcome to the crypt. Even Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham said, I don't think that's a particularly good idea. Mitch McConnell himself. Did you hear what Mitch McConnell said to rebuke Trump? He said, Never in the history of the country, through wars, depressions, and the Civil War, have we ever not had a federally scheduled election on time. We'll find a way to do that again this November 3rd. We'll cope with whatever the situation is and have the election on November 3rd is already scheduled. And then his statement was cut short because he ate his own chin. But the, the most astonishing rebuke the president received came from Stephen Calabrese. And uh, I'm a big fan of that sandwich. But he, the man, Stephen Calabrese, is actually uh, the co-founder of the Federalist Society. Now, did you hear what the Federalist Society said about this? The latest tweet on propose, postponing the election is fascistic and is itself grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again by the House of Representatives and his removal from office by the Senate. Broheim, if the billionaires who own our country are so ready to cut you loose that they let their human property say these things, when the Federalist Society dude is calling you a fascist, that's like Keith Richards hosting your intervention. Cheating is the only way he can hang on, and high turnout is the only way we can stop his cheating. This was a weird, weird week for me, guys. This was the first week that I got like more than seven hours sleep uh, for five nights in a row. And it's the first time we've attempted to do five sanity casts in a row. Uh, it's been crazy. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, we're going to try and do more of these instead of making it like one every 20 odd days. Um, so now it is my great pleasure to bring you an interview with a really special guy. And uh, most of the guests we have on the show are people I admire, and some of them I call friend. Uh, Gregory Joseph is, is truly both. He's a Democratic strategist, a political consultant. He served as a Capitol Hill aide 
or Senator Carol Mosley Braun, the first African-American woman elected to our Senate. He's done over, worked on over a dozen political campaigns. He was senior staff on Bill Bradley's 2000 presidential campaign. And right now he is communications director for the National Association to Abolish the Death Penalty. He's written stuff for Time and Alternate in the Nation. Uh, he's known as your aunt's favorite stand-up comedian. He's played all over. He won the New Faces of Comedy Award at the Woodstock Comedy Festival and the Laughter Trump's Hate Comedy Festival that was sponsored by MoveOn.org. When this whole thing is over, I'm hoping he and I can do a tour of some kind together. I hope you enjoy my conversation with uh, the very inspiring Gregory Joseph. He's the kind of guy you hope you get to vote for someday. Gregory, thank you so much for joining me. John, it's good to hear your voice again. Thank you for having me. It's great to hear your voice. And, and before we begin on, uh, on all these topics, um, and you have so much expertise in so many areas, you're in New Orleans. Let me ask... How are you? How are you doing? How are things there? Well, um, I'm doing well. I'm healthy. So that's, uh, that's very good. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, Louisiana was one of those states in the very, very beginning that almost got out of control. Um, we were one of the first states to kind of really do a shutdown. Right after Mardi Gras, people really started to become really concerned about the virus. And it looked like we were going to be one of, we would look like we were going to be in New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut, to be quite honest. Um, but then we really buckled down. We closed a lot of businesses. We, we quarantined sheltered in place. We canceled Jazz Fest and Essence Fest and all the fun stuff that we do down here in New Orleans on a daily basis. Um, and it seemed like we got through it and we started opening up little by little. But, you know, uh, one thing we think we've all learned is that you just can't open up and not get cases and not have people get sick. And so as much as we opened up, we've had to contract a little bit. Now all of our bars are closed. We used to do a little bit of an outdoor to-go thing. Now that it's all stopped, restaurants are still you know, capped at capacity. And of course, the lifeblood of the music scene here in New Orleans is no longer um, being able to be performed. So we are alive and well, but we are worried. You know, we are a, uh, an entertainment hospitality city. You know, yeah. if we can't have people in our clubs and in our restaurants and in our convention centers, um, I'm not sure exactly what the city looks like in the future. So we're just hoping that, you know, people are going to buckle down and stay safe and we'll get through this on the end. But it's not as hopeful as it was a month ago. Um, we're really thinking that we might actually go back into a total shutdown shortly. Yeah. I mean, we're still in the first wave, aren't we? You know, people keep thinking it's a second wave. And I, I think only uh, New York, New Jersey and Connecticut get to worry about a second wave. Uh, everyone else is still in the first wave. And, and it's it's just amazing to me that, you know, we're five months into this. Only three states have actually met the five criteria required for reopening. And the thing about the president that gets me, not so much that he downplayed the coronavirus for three or four months just to juice the stock markets, or the fact that 150,000 people are dead in this country, and he's not talking about it. He's not talking about the worst unemployment since the Great Depression. He doesn't really seem to realize that letting unemployment benefits run out and forcing people to send their children to school in the 47 unsafe states won't help his reelection. But what, what baffles my mind the most, knowing that he has no empathy, knowing that he only cares about himself, yet doesn't have the foresight to see until the day after tomorrow, that five months in, we're the only developed nation with no national strategy still 
for how to uh, confront this. It's like as if after Pearl Harbor, FDR told all 50 states to come up with their own war plans. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's what shocks me the most is that when you look at other we, – we take it for granted here because we're 50 states, but no other country had a leader refuse to lead and just pass the buck to every province, every county, every region. Um, I mean, like I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Well, no national strategy, no national leadership as well. I mean, you know, I think one of the benefits of this is that having Andrew Cuomo have served in the federal government, he knew Mm. the full power of the federal government. And if you remember those early press conferences, he was basically telling the president what to do. You know, Andrew Cuomo is the first person who brought up, you know, the, the, the Defense Production Act. You know, he, he said it at a press conference. And he told the president, this is what you do. This is what you do. And so his knowledge from being in the cabinet back in the Clinton years, I think, was really helpful for the American people to see exactly what the void of national leadership looked like. Yeah. You know, like you're not supposed to know these things. They're just supposed to happen. You know, we're not supposed to hear about the ventilators not getting to the countries. They're supposed to get to the states. You know, it's not supposed to be, you know, the the way the federal government is supposed to act in the time of crisis is seamless. And it just seemed like this was just like a stops and starts and never really got to the point. You know, I don't remember any of this happening during Ebola. You know, no. I'm not saying Ebola was, was, was a perfect response, but we had a czar. We had a plan. And my life was never disrupted. You know, mm-hmm. I never had to stay home. I never had to get file an unemployment or wear a mask or do things like that. But there was a lot of moving parts with the Ebola crisis and a lot of things going on on the federal yeah. government level. But like a good government, you know, you don't have to worry about it because they're competent people in charge. Well, I don't exactly. feel like the, I didn't feel like the president had good leadership around him. Clearly, he is not a leader um, and he doesn't really have the empathy and the understanding to really put his Put him, put him into his, to the American people's shoes. And it was just a botched response from day one. And the minute when he was at Davos and said, we're on top of it, we're all taken care of, I knew that we were in for a lot of trouble. We have uh, right now in America, uh, the combined deaths of Afghanistan war, Iraq war, Vietnam war, uh, Korean war, and World War II. Like, no exaggeration. And this guy has said repeatedly, like magic, it'll disappear. And I, I keep thinking about Ron Klain, who, you know, was Obama's Ebola czar and who literally wrote the pandemic playbook that they left behind. When I hear Trump blaming Obama for leaving flawed tests in 2017 for a virus that didn't exist until 2019, and the press just doesn't call out the lie on this, and the fact that to your point, like Ebola was handled because we had a national policy. Like, that's it. I mean, they, they wrote an epidemic handbook. And this administration, not just Trump, but all of them completely shelved it. And Ebola is, I believe, 100 times more contagious than COVID-19. But well, yeah, this, we I mean, this is a walk in the park compared to Ebola. Yeah. I mean, if I mean, you, well, you remember, you remember back on the White House lawn, on May 16th, 2020, um, Kelly McEnany, you know, the minister of disinformation and the mm. president about to aboard Marine One, Kelly McEnany holds up two documents and she says the Biden, the, the Obama Biden playbook was inadequate under the president's leadership. We drew this playbook up in 2019 and I will release the details of it tomorrow. That was May 16th. Tomorrow came no details. 
No details. No details. So found out that she was holding up uh, a response that the Obama administration had released in 2017, right? I mean, in 2017, right before the president, the current president took office. And of course, she was also holding up the old Obama plan book. Now, again, the White House has no plan. Never had right. a plan. The last Never had the a first plan. time. And the first time the president went back up on his press conferences after a two-month absence, he said, we're going to come up with a plan. So the White House press secretary lied and said they had a plan, threw the Obama administration under the bus because that's the only thing they know how to do. Indeed. When something happened, just blame Obama. I mean, Bob Barr was on the Hill blaming the Obama administration for not having enough stockpile ventilators in the well, national well, We're going to stop you right there. Bill Barr, you're quoting a fascist from the 90s, Bob Barr. Bob Barr, yes. Sorry, fascist, but both have that chipmunk look. You know, <laughs> Exactly right. I mean, if you were advising uh, Vice President Biden, I mean, I think about, you know, the fact that you've you've done so many political campaigns and, you know, you were on Bill Bradley's 2000 presidential campaign, which is the only campaign I've ever had a poster on my wall for, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and I I've told uh, Senator Bradley that every time he's done my show um, and, you know, the your work uh, under Senator Carol Mosley Braun, what would you advise Joe Biden to do as a candidate to just say, uh, to, to address the issue of, hey, uh, I will lead by having a, a national policy. I, I, I've said for a while now, he needs to run on three things, uh, three, six, 90, three things we got to do, wash <laughs> your hands, uh, uh, social distance and wear masks, six, four to six weeks of this and 90, if 90% of us did those three things for six weeks, it'd be done. That's a strategy. That's more than Trump has given us. But you're more nuanced at this than me. How would you advise the vice president to start showing what leadership on this even looks like? Well, I think the vice president has been doing a good job in showing what leadership, not just on this, but on the economy and on bringing America and healing America and moving America towards a more of a post-racial world, it looks so I think he's been doing a good job. I mean, remember, the person running Joe Biden's campaign right now is the person who ran Bill Bradley's communications. And that's You're right. Time. So I've got nothing but faith in Anita. And when she came onto that campaign, you saw that campaign make a total 180 and became more discipline focused and on message. Uh, I think Joe Biden is doing uh, running a responsible campaign. He's not responding to every stupid thing the president says, and he's putting out real markers on how to bring the economy back, how to open up schools, how to bring the economy back. What the president feels is just like, let's just open up again and just hope it all works out. But Biden, Biden is making investments in green energy. He's making investments in oil and gas, which I'm not so happy about, but he's doing it anyway. But he's really showing how we need to bring the economy back in rural and minority areas as well um, and answering the question of, of, of making it more of a, of a post-racial world. So he's doing a really good job in answering some of the questions that people have on their mind. Like, how do I send my child back to school? Well, the, yeah. Bi- the, Biden, the Biden school plan is a decent plan. What is going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to the economy? Biden put out a really impressive economic plan. Um, he's not running around and, and answering every stupid tweet that the president's on. He's not even really engaging the president. And I think the events that he's doing and the people that he's bringing into the fold and, of course, the excitement that's coming up with the vice president nominee, uh, announcement. Um, I just think that Biden is running a smart campaign. It's focus. It's discipline. And look what the president is doing. Every other day, he's got something else to say. And it's never about nothing positive, And it's nothing about yeah. making the American people feel like he actually has a grasp 
of what's going on. So I would say one thing for Biden is that I would use his surrogates as well as well. Because remember, Indeed. the president doesn't have any surrogates. He doesn't have anyone who's saying, oh, yeah, the president makes sense on this like payroll tax idea. He has the entire Republican House and Senate and all of Fox News. But, Right, but not really. But not really making his case. I mean, remember, the president came to the second round of of, of, of stimulus negotiations with a demand that we cut the payroll tax for the second yeah. time, and and Republicans said, "Yeah, that's not really going to do anything for anyone." So well, that wouldn't really- even go into effect until the end of the year, anyway. That's purely an election gimmick. And it's not even an election gimmick because the Republicans are not like, that's a good idea. Republicans shelved it twice. So he's not even bringing any new ideas to the table. I think that, you know, when we heard the oil and gas industry and the New York Times say, you know, Biden's plan gives us room to operate and it's a compromise and we're not as bummed out about it as we would normally be, um, is a sign that Biden is going, is Biden is being Biden. He's going right for the center, you know? Yeah. He's no liberal. He has to. to. Liberal. And a lot of a lot of our friends on the left don't get it. And it doesn't mean you have to like it. I don't like it, but I get it. You know, you you have to throw the liberals under the parade float, because when it comes to the general election, it's about getting all those white people, Greg, all those white people out in the Midwest who have to know that you're willing to make the liberals angry because making liberals angry is how you get elected to enact liberal policy. Or it's also talking to black and brown people who don't necessarily always respond to when the president goes, oh, I cut uh, the criminal justice reform. Like, I'm all for criminal justice reform, but it doesn't really touch my life. I'm not in jail. I have people in jail. You know, I'm a middle of the road person as well. I mean, I do support, you know, things of criminal justice reform and looking at and and strengthening our social net. But that's not my politics. That's not the politics that direct affect my life, you know. And so, you know, it's just this general election strategy, you have to begin to talk to the American people. You can't just solely talk to interest groups. And I think Joe Biden is doing a good job with that. The president is still talking to interest groups. You know, he's still talking to the alt-right. You know, he's still talking to Breitbart. And he's not even talking to Fox News now. He's just talking to OAN. So he's, he's, I think Fox has become a little bit too moderate for the president. Well, no, I think, I mean, he's still talking to him. He just talked to him twice last week. You know, the Chris Wallace interview that blew up in his face. And everyone said Chris Wallace asked him a gotcha question. He did no such thing. All he did was call Trump out on a really transparent lie about what we're talking about, that Joe Biden never called for defund the police and Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden opposes defund the police. And the media acted like Chris Wallace was the second coming of Edward R. Murrow just for calling out a lie, when in reality, it's really easy to just call a lie a lie. And I think the president actually, I think his whole scheme is he wants to buy, he's going to buy OAN as soon as he's out of there and make a Trump News Network. And that's why he's having this bad blood with Fox. Well, I mean, you know, given the fact that he might not be a free man, I don't think he's going to be buying much um, mm. when he gets out of there. I think on January 22nd, he's going to be marched into the downtown Manhattan <laughs> detention center and, uh, you know, and, and be placed under arrest. Um, so, yeah, let him buy OAN. I mean, whatever. It right. already is a Trump News Network as it is. So, it I mean, is I guess, you know, and again, nobody watches it outside of people who love uh, Donald Trump. So I mean, exactly, I it's, it's already it's it's cult ready. You know, I, it's I, another I, I wanna, project. I could talk to you about this all day. I have so many things I want to ask you about, um, and I I did want to ask you something about uh, John Lewis. We are taping this the day after the very moving uh, funeral service. The day after John Lewis had an op ed about his work published in the New York Times, which. Uh, has subsequently been recorded by Morgan Freeman uh, with a beautiful slideshow. I recommend everyone to see. But, you know, we're seeing people on the right who don't care about civil rights, 
who never cared about civil rights, who are more upset at protests against police brutality and racism then they're upset at actual police brutality and racism. And because uh, they just need to criticize Obama, what they're saying is, how could he give that eulogy and politicize a funeral? What is wrong with these people? They politicize John Lewis's funeral. And it's like John Lewis is a model of how to live a life that is always about more than just yourself. And uh, I don't know how they can't see that it would be an insult to John Lewis's life and to his life's work to make his eulogy about him alone. Uh, I think if Obama hadn't politicized it, it would have dishonored John Lewis. Well, you know, you know, we've always re- realized that there are just going to be people who are going to complain about something. And whatever Barack Obama does, there are going to be people who are going to say mm. something bad about him. I don't know how you divorce John Lewis's life from politics. And I'm not sure how you divorce John Lewis's life from the politics of the moment. I mean, if you're not going to sit there and say that we're going to honor this man in this casket by not telling the world who are watching right now that there are people who are trying to undermine the vote. I mean, then you're doing a disservice to everything that he fought for. Exactly. John Lewis bought his politics into everything that he did. When he went to sit down at a lunch counter, he was bringing his politics there. You know, when he when he sat down on the floor of the House of, House of Representatives, he was bringing his politics there. John Lewis's politics is John Lewis, you know, and his politics are good politics because the politics of diversity, the politics of inclusion, the politics of non-hate. So these are politics. These are things that are about him. And there's no reason why you wouldn't lift those up. I mean, I can't imagine a black president. John Lewis never imagined Barack Obama would be possible. And if for the black president, the first black president to honor a man who paved the way for voting rights and paved the way for civil rights and put his life and health on the line to make him be able to stand there and not say that all of this, what this man fought for, all of this bravery that this man brought to the cause is being jeopardized by leaders. Exactly. Right now, that would have been a disservice. That would not have been leadership. And I don't ever remember Barack Obama not being a leader. Exactly right. I mean, let me quote him. Even as we sit here, those in power who are doing their darnest to discourage people from voting by closing polling stations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws. I'm glad he added with students in that, by the way. Yes. That happened in Atlanta. That happened right there in Atlanta during the Stacey Abrams race. Yeah, seniors too. And and people who've recently become citizens. At black colleges and Morehouse. And and I mean, that that, that was a deliberate attempt by Brian Tim to say, if you went to a black college, you you can't vote here. He wrote, he said, attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the postal service in the run up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail in ballots. So people don't get sick. You want to honor John? Let's honor John by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. I mean, and and then he said, then he knew it was going to happen. He said, I know this is a celebration of John's life, but there are some who might say we shouldn't dwell on such things. But John Lewis devoted his time on this earth to fighting the very attacks on democracy that we're seeing circulate right now. I mean, if you were going to have a funeral for, you know, say, what can you not talk about? If, you know, if Harry Belafonte passes away, you're not going to talk about his work with SNCC, or you just right. going to say that said he sang Deo and that's it. I mean, I mean, there's, you know, this is this is John Lewis. You know, this was the good trouble. Barack Obama got in good trouble yesterday. Good point. Good point. Um, you know, so so here's the deal. Yesterday was the day that Donald Trump uh, did something that he's doing more and more, which is a sign of his panic. Uh, he said the part out loud you're not supposed to say. And on Twitter, <laughs> you saw it. We all saw it. He 
he once again, you know, the day 150,000 Americans were officially recorded dead, he tweeted not once about it, but he tweeted four times about the peril of mail-in voting. Not absentee voting, which is good. He doesn't understand anything. He He's voted with mail in three of the last four elections. Um, and it, it, it like he this is where he actually said delay the election in a tweet. Uh, the condemnation was swift from his own party. But it's like to me, I just thought, wow, you, you're trying to make Wall Street believe that they can be confident with you. And you're going to have a tell like that, that you're that scared, you're going to have this little, let, let Twitter be your focus group and float this trial balloon to see if uh, people like the idea. I mean, were, were you shocked at, not that he did it, but how poorly he raised the issue of postponing the election, which we haven't had to do during plagues and civil wars and world wars? You know, since day one, I've always said that he doesn't understand the job. Um, he doesn't understand the job of president. You know, when the co-founder of the Federal Society is opposed to your idea, and you're a Republican, re- Republican president, um, then you've got a really bad idea. And the op-ed from the, the co-founder of the Federal Society slamming, slamming uh, Donald Trump for this idea of delaying the election um, was pretty one of the biggest smackdowns from the Republicans that I've seen happen to him. You know, I felt it was more of a slap in the face of John Lewis um, yeah. to talk about uh, postponing the election on the day uh, that he's being laid to rest, a man who is so synonymous with fighting for elections and fighting for voting rights. Yes. Um, and I also thought it was more of his just being petulant child of saying everyone's looking at the former presidents, there's no one looking at me, so I'm going to show him how crazy I can get. Um, and it also just shows that he doesn't – he's stupid. He doesn't know how stupid he is. There is no difference between a mail-in ballot and an absentee ballot. And he's trying so hard to slander the mail-in ballots that he had to – you know. and then when they came back and said, well, Mr. President, you voted by absentee three times. They're like, well, absentees are good and mail-ins are wrong. And he doesn't understand there's no difference between the two. And he's been talking about this rigged and fixed for months and months and months and – it's all he was doing it in 2016 as well. Yeah, and he was he, right, by the way. He was right. I mean, <laughs> he was right, wasn't he? He kept yeah. saying it would be rigged. And WikiLeaks and it was rigged. WikiLeaks went <laughs> for him, Russia hacked for him, Comey shilled yeah. for him. It, it was rigged. He was right all along. Couldn't, 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 right. He laid it out for the American people. If anyone knows how to rig an election, it's Donald Trump. And the re, and so the less people that are going to the polls, the less way that they can be influenced and hacked by the Russians. And therefore, he loses control. And he's like, you got to come to the polls because the polls are the only place that I can cheat. I can't cheat in your house. But it's just sad. It's sad that the president of the United States is undermining our democracy. I mean, what does this look like? He calls, he says our voting by mail would be a national embarrassment to the globe. What is he undermining our democracy every other day with a tweet saying our election? I mean, this is, I mean, we are already the laughing stock of the the world right now. And he keeps on undermining everything that we hold true. And I know that Republicans said a, a few pushbacks, but I mean, this is not, well, Donald Trump, you know, this is not, oh, the election is going to move forward. This is Donald Trump needs to stop acting like a dictator. This is what dictators do. These oh, are the absolutely. ideas that dictators float. This is he's what African not, dictators do. This is what Middle yeah, East dictators do. Right. This is, and, this is, he's a white Idi Amin without the eating of the body parts. I mean, it's, it's just like, there is nothing about, I mean, it, it's so, it's sad. And it's again, as a Republican 
member of Congress or Republican governor to see how this man has just taken the conservative mantle and shattered it and makes it not even recognizable to people who call themselves conservative, it would appall me. The man stood up in the White House and said, I am the final authority and I can tell governors what to do. And you're going to run around and say states' rights every time that somebody brings something up in the mm-hmm. Republican Party and let him do that. And then let him stand there and say, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the election. I mean, hey, how about this? How about you call Vladimir Putin and say, you know what? We're going to come after you for killing our troops. Why don't you do that? Yeah, that would. I think that would get him that would further in the polls. That would totally oh, help him, Greg. I mean, that would help him in the polls. Coming out strongly him. in favor of a of a bailout for middle class people would get him in the polls. Exactly. Coming out and saying that we will not reopen a single school until every child is safe would help would him. Would help the him polls. in the polls. There's so it's much. It's like he, he doesn't do. want to win. It's like he, he doesn't want to win, or he doesn't know how to win. He's the one politician in the world who could bring about Medicare for all in this country if he wanted to do it. There's so much he could do to help him in the polls. And what disturbs me the most about this whole era of Trump is, isn't the corruption and it's not the racism and it's not the that he's compromised. And it, it's, it's not even the stupidity. It's that so many people can't tell how fucking stupid he is. I mean, yeah. like, like we all, if he postponed the election, that means Pelosi becomes president on January 20th and you get to go be a felon a little bit earlier. That's, yeah, I that's mean, it, all it means. Right. I mean, well, that's the thing. I mean, people think that the presidency, I mean, he is, his conditioned people, his supporters, his core supporters to believe that he has this ultimate power of being the president, this article two, article two, I got powers that you never heard of and stuff like that. So they just believe that he can do anything. I was reading on Twitter, which is never, you know, no, no place for facts, but I was reading on Twitter and one guy's comment was like, exactly, Mr. President, postpone the election, write write an executive order right now. Oh yeah, that's it. That's how you do it. <laughs> Executive order, you know. That's how you. That's how you stop the election. People don't know. People think the president of the United States can do anything they want. Donald Trump believed that when he came into office, and he doesn't understand every time we keep on pushing back at him that no, you can't do anything. I mean, this is the guy who wanted to put his name on stimulus checks. <laughs> I know. Hey, well, he did, and he did. Yeah, and he did. I mean- uh, it, it, it's to me, it's like, I guess because I'm a New Yorker, like we knew he was really dumb in the 80s. And that's not to say he's not cunning, you know, like he's not he's not uh, stupid per se. He's just profoundly ignorant. But he he says an awful lot of stupid stuff. And, and what scares me the most isn't how stupid he is, but that 62 million can see all of this and not perceive that he's stupid. That's what scares me the most. That's that's you know, the that's going to tear us down. You know, besides from being a super funny comedian and super smart and talented, I think one of the good things about one of the great things about these Sarah Cooper videos um, is that they actually see how stupid he is because it's because it's just his words and it's out of context. But you're just seeing hearing his words and you're hearing how he doesn't even answer questions, doesn't say things. He says things like, you know, we're going to go there and it's just going to we're going to do beautiful things to be perfect. It's going to be beautiful and everyone's going to like it. I mean, he doesn't answer any question. I mean, when he said he wanted to repeal Obamacare during the campaign, he said, if we're going to repeal it and replace it with something beautiful. Okay, that's great. (laughs) 
any healthcare providers know what the beautiful healthcare plan looks like? I mean, that's what I it, ask it, them all the time. I always say, what is the Republican healthcare plan that has better coverage and lower premiums than Obamacare that Donald Trump campaigned on for a year? And no one yeah. can ever answer the question. And they're still they're still trying to get rid of the Obama Ob- Obamacare in the courts, and they still don't have a replacement. And they don't they can't have a GOP plan because. I hate to remind people, Obamacare was the GOP plan. GOP plan. It was right. what Romney did. It, it was this thing that was all about the anti-socialism. It forced people to buy shitty private insurance. Once you it took out the public, public option, you were no longer going from a Democratic plan. You were going from a to a, a compromise with Republicans to say, OK, we're going to compromise. But we're going to do something. And, yeah, the, the only thing you can replace Obamacare with and make it beautiful is universal health care. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. It seems like Biden is on the road to the public option. Uh, it seems like it. Again, we keep hearing this is the most you know progressive platform uh, in Democratic Party history. Uh, and look, I, I think the right way for Joe Biden to run this is to run saying, yes, I'm an older white man. But look, I'm the proof that we can keep on learning from each other. I've made mistakes and I thought I was woke and I wasn't woke. And I've come to learn that woke is a journey, not a place you ever arrive to. And on be, there's millions of white people who want to do better. Sometimes we say the wrong thing, but our hearts are good and we want to learn and we want to listen. If he can start talking like that and speak for all the white folks who are terrified of being called racist, uh, even though they don't understand that sometimes they support views that are racist, he can stand in for a lot of nervous Caucasians and really do a lot of healing. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't. I hope my optimism in Biden isn't misplaced. Um, well, no, it's the same way that he used to talk about being a, you know, a blue collar kid from from Scranton. You know, like he understands what it's work, like to work in the mines, and and he he understands that. So he can once again, you know, just like he he emphasized and put himself in in the, in the shoes of parents who've lost children, and he he came out with that perfectly. I mean, he sounded like a, a father who lost a child. And he was able to communicate that to, to people, and they and they and they understood it. Um, I think Joe Biden. I think you're right about that. Joe, there's there's a lot of Joe Bidens in America. They might not be the same age as Joe Biden, but there are a lot of white men and white people in America who feel they were they're good. You know, they're not horrible. I'm not. You know, I don't have a Confederate flag flying outside my apartment or my house, and you know, I got. Yes, you know, I'm going to say if you have a Confederate flag, if you have a Confederate flag outside your house, you don't get to claim to be one of the good white people. You no, no, there are people. There are people who there there are the white people who feel like you know maybe I'm I, I'm good, but I don't. I maybe I could be better, or maybe I'm not as good as I think. And I think that Joe Biden can talk to those people. Like you know, we I have agree. a we can I still agree. grow. You know, we can still become better. You know, and if we become better, our country becomes better. And we have a man in the Oval Office right now who does not want us to become better. He wants us to revert to our old allegiances and our old prejudices and biases. He's not challenging the American people to become better. And I think that's what Joe Biden's candidacy is kind of doing for all of us. It's challenging us to say, you know what, maybe Joe Biden is not the same guy who did the crime bill. You know, maybe he's not the same guy who plagiarized or touching women inappropriately. Maybe he has grown some. And, and that's we how you understand turn it, that growth. Yes, this is how you turn the age, the ageism issue into a positive issue. You can say, look, there's two kinds of old people, the ones who haven't learned anything in 50 years because they're set in their ways. Right. And then there's the ones who care about being better people. And, and I think like the challenge for anyone is, is any, any campaign, how you turn your biggest negative into a positive. Joe Biden's age can become a positive if he can 
image himself as the guy who wants to get better and shows that, you know, uh, some white people do become kinder and wiser and uh, stronger as they get older. Do you, do you have any hopes or predictions or uh, dreams for a vice president? I mean, do you think there's someone he will pick or someone that you would like to see him pick? Um, you know, I think all the people that he's talking to and all the people who whose names have been bandied about are all good people who are all make a fine, fine vice president. Um, I don't necessarily believe that the vice president to pick is such a dynamic, important pick. Um, even, this do, year? It, even, even this year? I do. I feel, I think people are voting for not Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would love for people to vote for Joe Biden. I don't even think I'm voting for Joe Biden. I'm I voting against that. Donald Trump and everything that he's been and everything the Republican Party has stood for for the last three and a half years. Um, I kind of feel like I'm one of these like, you know, uh, Joe Scarborough or Stuart Stevens uh, Republicans who are just like, you know what, I'm voting for a Democrat for the first time because I can't stand what the Republican Party is, is, is stood for. Um, I would love Joe Biden to be a lot more progressive and a lot more younger and a lot more whatever, but I'm not voting for him. Yeah, you know, you're right. I'm That's voting. Correct. I'm voting for Chuck. I'm voting for Chuck Schumer. I'm voting for Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. I'm voting for you know, uh, you know, Democrats. You know, to to be in charge of the, the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Foreign and the Judiciary Committee. Uh, I want to. I want a Chairman Leahy again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what I yeah. want. Um, but I mean, if I had to choose one person, um, I would like to see Kamala Harris. I mean, that I, would. I, I told you back in in early 2017, I said to you that I thought uh, in March of 2017, I said Biden Harris is the most electable ticket. And uh, and I still feel the same way. I I think that her negatives can easily be turned into positives. Um, You know, she prosecuted people. Yeah. But a that's they're going for the white people. They're going to go for the lady who locked up MS-13 gang members. Right. Um, And and I think that, you know, I I do think that uh, the Democrats the only reason they might not pick her is because um, they've already got California. You know, they can go for someone from the Midwest or the South and possibly do better in Florida or what have you. But it, it does seem like, uh, as it has seemed to me for several years, that she's the obvious choice. You know, I'm not 100 percent sure the regional issue is just a big thing. Um, you know, Joe Biden from Delaware, it wasn't as if Delaware was going to go either Republican or if it did, it wouldn't really matter because it's only like one point four electoral. Oh, sure, sure. Like a Val, a Val Deming, if a Val Deming's helped you get Florida. Right? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think. All right. And I think there is. Right. That's a that's a, a, a risk. You know, I think Val Deming's. Does Val Demings get you Florida? I think I think Kamala Harris can get you Florida. Yeah, I think as well. she can too. You're right. You know, I, I mean, not, and not just saying because you're bringing, you know, Val Demings can bring the vice presidential nominee, who's a black woman, um, to her Tampa area and get just as the people just as much excited as they can for her. Um, yeah, you're right. I haven't seen Stacey Abrams carry the state of Georgia in a fair campaign. I'm not sure this is going to be yeah. a fair campaign. So I'm not sure okay. if she gets you Georgia, and I'm not okay. sure if you want to pull all your in your in the African-American women are going to make up the thrust of the democratic party. And so if you look where African-American women are, um, 
having an African-American woman on the ticket will help, even if that person's not from that state. So all the African-American women in Atlanta and Tampa and, and, and Chicago and Indianapolis are going to respond to whoever African-American woman you put on that ticket. I don't think Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, will get a lot of people excited, no, I, but I, I do I, think at the end of the yet. day, we're still voting against Donald Trump. And so I, I will go and be happy to vote for a Biden, a Biden Warren, Biden, um, whoever, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one last thing. Um, you know, a big issue for both you and me is the death penalty. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's because of uh, the way I was raised. Um, I actually take the Jesus stuff seriously on this issue. <laughs> Jesus is a guy who never mentioned abortion, but overturned eye for an eye in his first public gig, Sermon on the Mount. And the work that you've done. Uh, with that, the yeah. <laughs> oh, his manager. Jesus Christ, can you stop talking <laughs> about love? They don't come here to hear you talk about love. They come <laughs> here to do the magic tricks. You go out there and go ahead and heal a leper, make a blind Turn some water into wine. Turn some water into wine. Dude, you want to talk about love, you'll have a great show. And NPR will air it and 12 people will listen. You'll be really fucking proud. I want to get you fans, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Jesus's manager is my favorite figure in history. No, uh, I, your work with the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty is something I've admired a lot. I've done a lot of work uh, with Mike Farrell's uh, um, yeah, Death Penalty uh, Focus. Death Penalty Focus of Southern California. I've hosted like their last six award shows. And, you know, William Barr is a deep Catholic uh, and Donald Trump is a deep Christian. And that's why they want to start killing people. Uh, and, you know, all lives matter <laughs> and they're pro-life. And all yeah. life is sacred. So let's kill more people. And they've already resumed federal executions and they're scheduling more. Yeah, I, think we're I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but are you surprised? Um, I am surprised that they're doing federal executions again. Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I mean, I am surprised that they started the death penalty again. I mean, they didn't really. It's it's. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, I'm I'm kind of in a little bit of a speechless moment because I'm just thinking about the nine execution dates that are going to be set sometime today for the month of August and September. Um, and it's just they're, it's they're going make- to kill people. They're going to kill sinners, so Christians will hire them. That's it. They're killing. Well, the no, they mean, they I mean, I mean, one of the one of one of the one of the guys they killed wasn't wasn't even guilty. So I mean, it wasn't. As if oh, they yeah. didn't just kill an innocent person. You know, they, they're using it as for politics, which, I mean, there's oh, no man. surprise from this uh, administration. But the fact is that, you know, to, for the federal death penalty to, to go forward, that you have to have the same protocol as the state where the crime was committed. So if you have a three-drug cocktail and say the crime was committed in Indiana, uh, you have to kill that person with a three-drug cocktail. Um, the problem is that no states are using the three-drug cocktail anymore because you can't get the three drugs. Yep. And one of the states is actually doesn't have the death penalty anymore. So they're literally just proceeding with a one drug, let's just get it done, and we're let's not going to worry people. about the law. And it's it's all politics. And it, all it's, it. it's disgusting that, you know, look, life and death it's is murder. politics. I mean, but it, this is like, state-sponsored murder. Are you in front of your eyes? Being, being carried out by a man who we have uh, dozens of attorney generals and prosecutors have said should resign. And and overseen by a man who is corrupt, the president of the United States. And these are the two people who are carrying out justice. Bob Barr and Donald Trump are administering justice. <laughs> man, this is a that is a uh, that's a blind lighting leading the absolute blind. But on the flip side, we have abolished the death penalty um, in Colorado in the last two years, in Washington in the last two years, in New Hampshire in the last two years. 
Um, there's a bunch of states that no longer use the death penalty. Uh, the majority of the American people oppose the death penalty. Uh, we've seen criminal justice reform taken a hold across the country in various areas, and the death penalty is one of them. Because if you're going to talk about racial bias in the criminal justice system, yeah, it's really bad to be pulled over for driving while black. But you know what's worse? Being strapped to a gurney and shot with killer drugs for you being black. And that right. happens all the time in this country. Um, and so I think that the American people are beginning to see exactly what this quote unquote justice um, looks like and they're rejecting it. And rightly so. And, you know, Donald Trump is doing what Donald Trump is doing. You know, is America still going to be a place to welcome um, refugees and immigrants? Yes. When he's gone. And is America still going to be a place that's going to shun the death penalty and shun this kind of punishment? Yes, when he's gone. And he's gone in 97 days, people. So, I mean, this is just more motivation, I think, for people to get out and make sure that her is heard. Because if you're a pro-life, if you're Catholic, if you believe in redemption, if you believe that punishment should match the crime, all of this, he's going against it. So... All you Alabamans who are pro-life and wear your bumper stickers and choose life, well, these people are life. So, yeah. It's amazing. And, I mean, it went the state strapping a guy to a table and filling him with poison uh, until he's dead. I don't think it gets more big government than that, does it? I can't think of an example of more big government. The last one that federal executed was on the gurney for eight hours. Yeah waiting to be killed. Um, no, there's nothing more big government than, um, than taking your life. Yeah. Um, and it is, and every argument against for the death penalty is never really borne out. Um, never, you know, I don't feel any safer now that those two people are dead. You know? <laughs> um, and, but no. you know, again, I think what the death, look, what we saw, uh, we, 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 we saw, were safer when Soleimani was still alive. Yeah, I mean, look, the death. Look, the, we saw that we saw the death penalty with George Floyd. I mean, that was a death penalty. That was a state-sponsored murder with yeah. witnesses and everything. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it takes about eight minutes for all the drugs to kind of stop your body, and it took about eight minutes for the knee to, to stop him breathing. But we all saw that. We saw the death penalty, and it was it was an innocent man who uh, the judge and jury was a, was a bunch of white people, and they just stood there and they killed him, and nobody said anything about it because you're allowed to just do that. And so, you know, I, I think that Americans, Americans, their bloodlust, their revenge, it's every year, you know, Gallup does a poll, and every year 50, 52, 53 say they oppose the death penalty. And this has gone on for 10 years. So the, the shift towards away from capital punishment has been profound in this country. You're right. And I think only, and I think it only helps when, you know, we see all these exonerations. You have 258 people exonerated from death row because they've been innocent. How scary is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, innocent people. Time, innocent. Same, absolutely yeah. 100% innocent. But at the same time, it's the people who are fighting against it that keep my faith in this country going. You know what I mean? It's all the decent – like every time I want to give up on this country, I remember all the people who are fighting harder than me because they won't give up on this country, and that's what keeps me from giving up. And you're one of those people, Greg. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to hear your voice. Can, can you tell our listeners how they can follow you and your work and, and hear, hear your stuff and learn more about what you do since we're not going to be on the road this year? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Well, you can always follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is who is Frog Joseph F-O-R-G-J-O-S-E-P-H. And Frog Joseph is a very old slide trombone player from right here in New Orleans. 
Uh, you can also follow the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty everywhere you can on social. We are still very active. We are doing execution alerts every month. Uh, we are ramping up and trying to get petitions into the federal government to stop these ex- ongoing executions. And, um, you know, I am... I'm not doing any online comedy, so I, I guess you're just going to have to settle for my quips on Twitter and, um, <laughs> and and me trying to direct people to to use their voice to to stop uh, state-sponsored executions um, with the with the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. It is so good to hear your voice, Gregory. Thank you so much for joining us, and please, John, please keep safe. It's always John. John, you have been doing for the longest time a great service to not only people who consult themselves progressives and comedians, but people who want to use their voice to to really not just speak up against the issues, but give other people platforms so they can use their voice. And I've always appreciated every time I've been on your show and now on your podcast. And every time you get me to, uh, to talk about whether it's a death penalty or Bush or, or anything, um, it, it's very welcome. So thank you so much for, for giving me this time. Oh, I'm deeply honored. It's really a pleasure. Please stay safe. And uh, I look forward to seeing you, whether uh, it's you in New York or me getting back to, L- uh, to, to Louisiana or somewhere in between. You got it. Thanks. Stay safe. Thank you. All right. You know what I hate? When your social media pops up with a summer vacation pic from like five years ago, and it's great memories, but you're like, ugh, when do the wrinkles and the bags around the eyes show up? Delete, delete. Well, not this summer. Let's say no more pop-up pics with deep wrinkles, fine lines, and bags under the eyes. And I'm not talking about surgery. I'm talking about Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags all in the comfort of your home in minutes. Plexiderm goes on clear and lasts for hours, so no Nobody will know your secret. I tried it and I look like me, just younger, healthier, and better rested. The results will blow you away. Get Plexiderm and love how you look and feel this summer in the mirror and in photos. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use the code VOICES for half off a full size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. Or try a $14.95 trial pack today by calling 1 800 685 1292 and mention VOICES. Again, visit tryplexiderm.com and use code VOICES for half off a full size bottle plus an additional $10 off or try a $14.95 trial pack when you use code VOICES. We all know that the Clean Phone Pro with its powerful UV lights kills bacteria and viruses that live on your cell phone, car and house keys, credit cards, earbuds, face masks and more. But what happens when you're driving to the store, you reach for your face mask and realize you wore it yesterday? Now you can sanitize that mask in under five minutes in your car because the Clean Phone Pro now ships with a powerful car plug adapter included in the package. So whether you're keeping safe at home or have to go out, you can have the benefits of the Clean Phone Pro with you and sanitize those constantly touched items anywhere, at home, in the car, or at the office. Get the Clean Phone Pro now with a car plug adapter. Add the code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word, at checkout, and you'll get free two-day shipping. Only you can defend yourself and your family from bacteria and virus. Get the new Clean Phone Pro package. Get KN95 masks and get free two-day shipping by adding the code SEXYLIBERAL. Go to the newdealshop.com. Thank you, Gregory Joseph. Uh, please do follow him. So before we get out of here, I just want to play a quick round of Timeline Game. Um, timeline Game is something I do on the radio and on Twitter, and I'm starting it here. You can take any date of the month, pick a number between 1 and 31, and then just take that number and use it for every month of 2020. And no matter what day you pick, just pick January, February, March. It will tell you the story of Donald Trump's criminal negligence to the American people during this pandemic. 
So that's how you play it. Just pick a date and look up the number. For example, uh, the 30th. Go back to January 30th. That was the day that uh, Alex Azar warned Trump of the possibility of a pandemic, and Trump wrote it off and called him alarmist and had a rally. Uh, that was the day that Wilbur Ross said it would help accelerate the return of jobs if we had COVID-19. Now, by March 30, we had 3,000 dead Americans. That was the day that Trump lied about getting a broken test from the Obama administration. Um, that doesn't really work. Obama didn't have a test for COVID-19 back in 2017. That was the day that Trump went on Fox News and said, uh, New York will be fine. That was the day Trump said a month ago, nobody had ever heard of this. Nobody had any idea. Two months of the day after he called Azar alarmist, he said nobody had any idea. That was the day he invited the My Pillow guy to come compliment him in the Rose Garden. Skip ahead a month, April 30th, okay? Uh, by then, the death toll had grown. Uh, it was no longer 3,000 dead. By April 30th, it was 63,000 American deaths. And that was the day that, um, well, that was the day <laughs> that Trump said, if you add up the rest of the world, we've done more testing, which was a lie. So then go to May 30th, one month later, it tells the whole story. We'd gone from 63,000, we went from 3,000 dead on March 30th, 63,000 dead on April 30th, 102,000 dead on May 30th. That was the day Trump announced he was going to end the White House social distancing guidelines. Uh, go ahead a month to June 30th. That day we had 129,000 dead. That was the day that Fauci warned the country was going in the wrong direction. That was the day Trump called himself the lone warrior in all caps for no reason on Twitter. That was the day that he threatened to veto the defense bill if they renamed bases that were named for white supremacist traitors. That was his priority the day of 129,000 dead. And then skip ahead one more month to the 30th of July, and that's the day Donald Trump said, maybe we should postpone the election. That was the same day the death toll reached 154,000. Thank you guys for paying attention. Thank you guys for being on top of it. And thank you guys for listening to Sanity Cast. Please, please subscribe and review and uh, listen to all the great shows on the Sex Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Um, and please, please, uh, we're going to be covering the convention on uh, Serious Sex and Progress. So it's a great time, really a great time to go ahead and get that free uh, subscription for 30 days or just go ahead and get the whole thing. Uh, I'm John saying Thank you again to Chris Lavoy, uh, everyone at the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Thank you to Jennifer Hager. And um, remember, real patriots don't ever Google the words Trump spray tan lines. Don't do it. Don't write Trump spray tan lines on Google and then search images. If you're a patriot, don't do it. <laughs> or do it. As Kathy Griffin said, blend, bitch. It'll make your day. And remember, if you're ever depressed, you can always Google Rick Perry eats a corn dog in front of a painting and see what comes up. It'll heal you. I'm John Siegel saying, peace.